From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. Even if you've represented a client who's now a former client, you owe duties of confidentiality to them and you owe a duty not to use any information you have about them in a way that's adverse to them. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Today on our show, we are diving into the Varsity Blues brouhaha, Back in March, 51 people were named as part of a criminal conspiracy to game college admission decisions at nine universities. Now the case is tangled in conflicts. Most of the law firms representing the accused also have ties to the schools involved in the scandal or are representing both defendant and conspirator. Miami Law's Director of Professional Responsibility and Ethics Program, Jan Jakobowitz, joins us to decipher the facts. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Morning, Jan. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So Varsity Blues has been a bit of a slow motion fiasco, it feels like, and it keeps getting bogged down in, in little hooks and barbs. The latest being, uh, it looks like, conflicts in, in uh, representation. So why does this matter? If the client doesn't care, why should the judge or the prosecutor? That's an interesting question, and... Um, Yes, I think it was Law 360 referred to this as the biggest legal ethics case of the year because you don't usually see this in the headlines. But uh, the court and the prosecutor can have all kinds of motives for caring, particularly the prosecutor. But fundamentally, they don't want to delay um, and they want a fair trial. So if a conflict arises later on, that's foreseeable, then uh, it the attorney will have to withdraw. New counsel will have to get up to speed. It will cost the client and the court and really the prosecutor's office a lot of time and expense. So it's not a way just to knock down a really good lawyer that you think is going to beat you. Well, that's why I said I'm, I can't know all the motives of a prosecutor, um, and I wouldn't begin to second guess it. And yes, that's been suggested from time to time. Um, but if we want to go pure motives, then um, clients deserve to have an attorney that's zealously representing them throughout the whole case, because it costs the client as well additional expense if they have to terminate a lawyer and find a new lawyer. Okay. Um, so, but even if the firm no longer represents, let's say University of Southern California or, or one of the schools involved, does that conflict still exist? Um, and we could also go into um, firms that are representing multiple clients or in the case of Boyce Schiller, who's representing both a defendant and a co-conspirator. Okay, so there's a lot of questions within that comment. Maybe if we back up for a moment and consider what the conflict rules govern and what they say. And they essentially say that a lawyer cannot represent clients if they are adverse to one another uh, and they cannot represent clients if there's a material limitation so those are two different standards. The material limitation is even grayer. That's if you owe 
obligations to another client or you have a personal interest, maybe you can't do the best job. So in the case of uh, husband and wife, then if those two have different um, involvement in the Varsity Blues situation, uh, in the wife did everything, the husband really wasn't involved, for example, uh, they may have different approaches in defending themselves and they may end up even inadvertently pointing a finger at one another. So then you have clients that have become adverse to one another. So that's one of the things a prosecutor raised. Um, on the question of USC, even if you've represented a client who's now a former client, you owe duties of confidentiality to them and you owe a duty not to use any information you have about them in a way that's adverse to them. So it gets, it gets complicated even in the discussion of this, but that's why the firms are saying uh, we represent or we represented USC, but it had nothing to do with this case. And we're not going to sue them on our client's behalf at any point if if that even comes to pass. In the case of Boy Schiller, they're saying those two clients don't even know each other, and to the extent there may be a conflict in any way between them, they've put up a virtual screen, let's call it, uh, so that the lawyers working on one case are screened off from the lawyers on the other case. And law firms in this day and age have to do that electronically so you can be blocked and not be able to access the files. Uh, Florida, for example, doesn't permit screens in its rules. So it just depends upon um, where you're practicing, whether that screen is even a viable option. Do you mean that you couldn't have two lawyers from the same firm working for different clients in the same case in in Florida? Is that what you're saying? Well, or two clients that are adverse in any situation where the law firm would otherwise be conflicted out but for a permissible screen, Florida has not in its rules recognized screens as permissible. Uh, there's, you know, on the one hand, lawyers should have integrity and law firms, especially the larger ones, have the capacity to electronically screen lawyers off. On the other hand, lawyers, despite what some people think, are human beings. And so people go out to lunch, they have a meeting in the conference room, and some uh, would say they're not comfortable mm -hmm. with the screen. How is the client harmed in these cases? Let's say it goes ahead and, and Boyd Schiller or whatever firm is representing the husband and the wife or one of the universities and one of the uh, accused or, or whatever the situation, how, how does this hurt the client? Well, the idea is, and what Judge Kelly was most concerned about in uh, the case of Lori Laughlin and her husband, is that each client is entitled to effective 
and what what we call zealous representation. And if a lawyer has a conflict in doing the best thing for the client because it's going to impact the other client, uh, then that becomes a problem. So it's really for the clients uh, more than it is to knock out a good lawyer um, or anything else. The focus is on the client. Now, in their case, it's very interesting. The the consent affidavit or declaration that they signed was made public. And if you, if anyone's really interested to see how the conflict rules work, it very much tracks the rules, how that was drafted. They were warned that um, a conflict could arise, that the attorney might have to withdraw if it did from both of their cases or one of their cases, that if USC became involved, they would have to retain co-counsel or otherwise handle it. So it's um, one of the best examples I've ever seen on public display of how to read through the conflict rules, which, by the way, uh, create controversy even among the ethics community or so-called legal ethics community where lawyers often debate on listservs how to handle a conflict. So in the case of their having signed a waiver, all of those things still could happen. And what what would happen? So let's say they get into the trial and all of a sudden, if they did this, it's good for Lori, but bad for the husband. What happens then? They've signed a waiver. They have to just play through? Well, the waiver, that's a very good question. So the waiver is acknowledging that all those things may happen. So backing up again, some conflicts are deemed to be not consentable, even if the lawyer goes through all the hoops and explains everything in the client's consent. For example, you couldn't represent a husband suing a wife in the same firm. But in this case, they're acknowledging that if things turn the wrong direction, their own lawyer may have to withdraw from one or both of them. So they don't have to play through they're just acknowledging that they may be disadvantaged because they may have to get a new lawyer in the middle of the case, which is never ideal. Okay. Um, so what's behind the prosecutor's attempt to m- remove more than half of the, the firms from the case? I mean, it's just a huge boon to the white collar uh, bar in, in Boston. It seems like most of all the big firms are involved in making some money. Well, the Latham, I think the Latham firm, which has been with others very much in the news, I I don't, I think they have 2000 lawyers plus. So um, I, I think above the law wrote a piece on on law firms getting so big, they get themselves in trouble. And the prosecutor back to the earlier part of our discussion it's hard to know because the prosecutor charged everybody as part of the same conspiracy, which the defense counsel ha- take issue with because these were different incidents um, and over a different over various time frames and someone was going to be uh, an athlete and someone else was coming in in another way. So the prosecutor, again, maybe just trying to um, 
clean clean up the situation so that the trials don't get delayed so they can move forward without a lot of um, lawyers having to be disqualified and motions for disqualification. On the other hand, I don't know if there's um, certain firms they would prefer to hamper. I wouldn't um, I wouldn't assume that about the prosecutors, but certainly it's it's a point of discussion because when you talk about it being a boon for the white collar um, community, the defense community, the more lawyers that get knocked out, the more lawyers have business. So either way, um, they're going to be dealing with a lot of the white collar um, defense bar in Boston. So it it feels to me like you're really dealing with three different things. You're dealing with parents who paid for cheating on their children's part, parents who made a donation to the school uh, through athletics to get their child a scholarship, which is much different than cheating on a test. And then you have the conspirators who took the money and enacted. So you're saying they're kind of all under the same umbrella, but in a different world, would they actually, those three buckets be separated out? Well, the prosecutors have thrown it all into the same bucket of conspiracy and the defense lawyers are trying to separate that out. The um, cheating on the test is fraud. Uh, getting a scholarship for your child in a sport they don't play is similarly fraud. Um, different from parents who traditionally for years make a big donation to a school, uh, wink, wink, and their child applies and is likely in the grid, maybe at the lower end and, and gets into the school. It, it almost spills into the conversation about legacies, which, you know, the schools give points for legacies. So um, I think you need to distinguish outright fraud from, you know, years from of wink, wink. Yeah. From from wink, wink, where uh, the child is in the grid to get in, but many people in the grid don't get in because there's too many applications for the spots. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is brought to you by Miami Law's International Comparative Insolvency Symposium. The conference on November 14th and 15th will focus on cross-border issues in bankruptcy and insolvency law, including Puerto Rico's bankruptcy filing and Brexit. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.